Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey gang, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to say that we pride ourselves here at the Lincoln Project Podcast for having the best, most knowledgeable guests we can find to talk about authoritarianism, democracy, and what it means for the future of the United States. I hope that as you listen to these guests, you'll check out their work, whether or not it's their Twitter feed, their Substacks, the books they've written. They all have an incredible amount to share, and I hope you'll take advantage of it. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Ruth Ben-Ghiat, author and professor of history and Italian at New York University. Ruth is an expert on fascism, authoritarianism, war, propaganda, and like so many of us, Donald Trump. She's the recipient of the Guggenheim, Fulbright, and other fellowships. Ruth is a columnist for MSNBC and has written for a wide variety of outlets, including CNN, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post. She's authored multiple books, including her latest, which is a must-read, Strongmen from Mussolini to the Present. I highly recommend it. Found wherever fine books are sold. She is also the publisher of Lucid, her Substack newsletter. Today, she's coming to us from New York City. Ruth, welcome back. Thank you. Delighted to be here. All right. So before we get into the nitty gritty of, you know, what we're seeing with potential indictments, and as we record this, Donald Trump has not yet been indicted, but by the time people listen to this, maybe he will. But I want to ask a little bit about the psychology of the follower. What we see now, Ruth, would you categorize it as the Republican Party is an authoritarian movement or Donald Trump and MAGA are an authoritarian movement and the Republican Party is its political wing? How would you say it? Honestly, the entire GOP, and I, by this I don't mean the Republican voters, I mean the party, is an autocratic entity at this point. And we can talk about all the ways that's true. Within that, there are the MAGA, you know, Trump's hardcore. And it's tempting to say that they are the extremists within the movement. But I don't want to say that because were that true, the rest of the GOP would have had some remorse or have disavowed January 6th, a violent coup attempt. So I'm not trying to say that all Republican politicians are MAGA and there, for example, on Ukraine, there are some differences. Uh, there are people who are pro-helping Ukraine and people who are not. But the entire party is behaving as an autocratic entity now, including if it had its own foreign policy, it would be much more oriented to other autocrats. Let's talk about the politicians, right, themselves, because I've seen this play out, but I want to see if there's a historical, maybe a psychological or political aspect to it, which is for someone like Trump to succeed or any strong man to succeed, there has to be a lot of not only compliance, but also, you know, okay, let's just 
what's the harm in humoring him? Complacency. Complacency. But there have been plenty of opportunities for not the Marjorie Taylor Greens, but the quote unquote normal Republicans, right? They're on this path, Ruth, and they reach these forks in the road a lot. And every time so far that I've seen anyway, that they reach these forks in the road, one that leads to truth and the light, for lack of a better way to put it, or deeper into the authoritarian mindset, deeper into that complacency, deeper into that compliance, they always take the bad path. Why is that? You know, I try and give the big picture. And when you step back, what Trump did so effectively, people who say he's lazy, I don't agree with that at all. The guy did so much in a short time. It's just that he was interested only in certain things and not some conventional things of presidents. And he put the Republican Party from the start under a kind of authoritarian discipline. And that changed the political culture of the party in terms of certain things that it believed, but most of all, changed behaviors. So for example, there was no longer any dissent allowed in the party. And loyalty to Trump became the most important guiding principle. And so when they reached these junctures, for example, you know, when the Mueller investigation was on or his impeachments, you ended up, not only was everyone going along, but people who didn't go along, like Peter Mayer, the representative, had to buy body armor. And he said, I'll never forget this. He said, this was after the second impeachment. And he said, our expectation is that someone will try and kill us. And of course, what had happened to Mike Pence that no one wants to talk about is that, you know, he was targeted for harm. So that's the product of an authoritarian view of party politics, where the leader's integrity and the leader's preservation is what matters most. And anyone who doesn't respect that becomes an enemy. And then you get to Rhino, the Republicans in name only. And you get to Eric Greitens, who ran for, he lost, but he ran for Senate. And he's a former governor. Who was thrown out of office for very bad behavior. For bad behavior. But in this climate, he became the perfect person to put forward, because I'll, I'll get to that point in a sec. And he was rhino hunting with an assault rifle in a campaign ad. So you get that. The other thing to look at, and this is where I look at the GOP in the perspective of comparative politics, other autocratic parties. When you're transforming into an autocratic party, you know, a party that's going to support a liberal government, you got to look at who's getting thrown out or who's leaving the party and who's coming in. You know, so the Liz Cheney's, the people who are more principled have no place. But who's coming in? The lawless, anti-government, violent extremists like Mark Fincham and Oath Keepers and Proud Boys are coming in, like actual extremists. And then George Santos, fraudsters, just lawless people. And that's something that goes back to fascism where you need to have lawless people and corrupt people in the party as your new elite in order to sustain a mode of governments that run on corruption. Let me ask this, because there are the George Santoses of the world. There are the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. I mean, look, even Jared Kushner is at best a dilettante, right? An ignoramus of epic proportions and arrogance that is incredible for someone who's done little to nothing in their lives. But there are people, Ruth, though, for whom Trump is a vehicle to something. The Stephen Millers of the world, the Leonard Leos of the world, 
the Steve Bannons of the world. So talk a little bit about that, because yes, there is a great deal of incompetence around, but it seems like there are, I don't want to say talented, I don't know if that's the right word, but certainly determined bad actors for whom Trump provides you know, a very attractive and very effective vehicle. Yeah. So part of this is, and I didn't fully realize this till I wrote Strongman and I did the research, the people Trump had around him were these people like Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, and of course, Steve Bannon, who had decades of experience in trying to wreck democracies. So as we know, you know, Roger Stone and Paul Manafort had a lobbying firm and they were hired by Ferdinand Marcos, the dictator in the Philippines in the 80s to pull off a fake election. So that was very revealing to me. So you've got those players and we should always look at who is around. Like we should be looking at very carefully at Christina Pusha and all these people around DeSantis now, like who are their inner circle? Because that matters. But then you have the classic conservative elites or far-right elites, because every strongman is brought into the system and also sustained by this, they could be religious elites, financial, people like Leonard Leo, who are the kingmakers behind the scenes. And they make what's called an authoritarian bargain with these people. It's like a mutual using that they're going to get what they want. And the thing that makes it possible is that people like Trump and Erdogan and Orban, all these guys, they are totally transactional beings. Totally. They have no moral code. They will ally with anyone if it's going to help them. So that's what you see with that. And it's very interesting how some of these people are transferring their affections to DeSantis now because he is also totally transactional and he's making himself into a person who will attract such partners. But I, I would say this is that my belief on the DeSantis front for a lot of those people is that it's an aesthetic choice. They think Trump's embarrassing. They think he's a clown and they can invite DeSantis to the club and not be embarrassed about it. Yes. And you know, in history, there's a very interesting parallel here. When you've got someone like Trump who's out there, right? Who says, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone. That's how he starts his campaign, which like should have been a red flag, but whatever. And in fact, two weeks after he made that speech, Jeff Sessions endorsed him. That speech allowed him to come into the Republican Party, which is pretty scary. And Jimmy Fallon had him on his show. So that speech actually was exciting to many people. So when you got somebody like that, who's a loose cannon, who ends up doing you know, a noisy insurrection and is too much, there can grow an appetite for someone who is actually just as extreme, but is quiet and will do things without, as you said, you can have them to the country club. And this happened in the Philippines because you had Duterte, who was always shouting about his lawlessness and shouting about how he loved to throw people out of helicopters and he could have five women at once and just out there. And then it created an appetite for someone less outwardly thuggish. And so who do we have now? We've got Bong Bong Marcos, who represents the whole heritage of dictatorship, but they marketed it as like martial law was a golden time of peace and order. No like shouty Duterte, you know, talking about killing people. And so I look around the world and I think about things in terms of dynamics that can apply to here. And that's partly what I see going on here. Some people are just, they're sick of Trump and, and Trump is very unusual. There is no one 
as criminal as Trump in so many ways. And the Russia stuff is just part of his criminality. And he's a money laundered, multiple mafias. It's like the scope of the crime is so vast that there is no one else like him. So anybody else, even if they're horrible extremists and will stop at nothing, seems better. That's the problem. You were talking about comparative politics earlier. These are comparative politicians. Well, yeah, Ron DeSantis is an active authoritarian within a state he controls, but is he Donald Trump, right? But it's ultimately a false bargain. Yes, totally, a false bargain, and it's very dangerous. Some people use the word the Overton window. And I saw this in Italy with Berlusconi, who comes in, he's a similar type, extremely corrupt on a vast world scale. And when somebody comes like that and they normalize extremism, like literally they, they address themselves to extremists, they bring extremists into government, the whole system, and not only the party, but the whole voter base, everybody moves so far to the right that it's permanently shifted. And then somebody else can come in and seem more law-abiding, but they're also extremist. I mean, even during the course of the 2020 campaign, we even said, now, this was before January 6th and everything else, is that the next MAGA iteration would be MAGA run through the car wash, and that's what Ron DeSantis is. But I want to talk a couple of things. You see, you talk about the authoritarian bargain, because this is, I was thinking about this the other day, Ruth, is that if you think about Trump's main bases of support, you know, in 2016 and then ultimately into 2020. So let's talk about three groups, the financiers. He gave the financiers everything they wanted, rolled back regulations, rolled back taxes, the hardcore evangelicals, right? Judge, 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 judge ultimately gets what they want, which is the Dobbs decision of last year overturning Roe v. Wade. And then you had the rank and file, the overwhelmingly, perhaps almost exclusively white male, racially nervous, you know, anxious, whatever the case might be. And he gave them a license to be assholes, to be revanchist. And he gave them a voice when they thought they didn't have one. So you could make an argument, not in a traditional sense that a president kept his promises to, you know, pass this law, do this, do that. But he gave the worst of his people everything they wanted. Totally. I'm glad to hear that analysis. And that's why I, I tried in Strongman, which is the first book to put him in historical perspective. But I analyzed a lot of what he did in the civil service, which people can think, oh, how boring bureaucracy. It's really important. In fact, the phrase autocratic capture is when a, you know, somebody staffs the civil service and department of this, department of that with loyalists and changes the culture of civil service and the culture of those agencies. And there was one retired ambassador who said, I have the quote in my book, that it was like what Trump did to the Department of State was like a hostile takeover. So he came through very well for these groups. He did a ton of stuff. And one thing that people don't necessarily realize is when we think of authoritarianism or fascism, we think about people's rights being restricted and the heavy hand of the state. And that's part of it. The other part comes from neoliberalism, and it's about rolling back rights to let elites do what they want to do, plunder the environment, you know, ruin consumer safety regulations so they can just make money and not have to worry about any controls on themselves. And he did that. And for the base, you know, he partly decriminalized domestic violence. That's very important because for the base, for, you know, men, like think about his whole discourse of lawless masculinity, 
you're going to roll back women's rights, but create an environment and a climate where men feel they can get away with anything because the essence of authoritarianism is getting away with it. And Trump, here we go with what will happen to him, who knows, this week, he's the man who has gotten away with everything. Right. For his entire life, for the most part. His entire life. So before we go back to him and the getting away with the piece, I want to I talk about the idea of this private army, because as we're recording this, Enrico Terrio, who's, I don't know if he's still the head of the Proud Boys, but was the head of the Proud Boys, the government just rested its case in his seditious conspiracy trial. There was another seditious conspiracy conviction, I believe, late last year. But I wouldn't call the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters or these militias, I wouldn't call them very highly organized, Ruth. They're not the Marine Corps, right? Like, if you needed a platoon or a squad or a company of these guys to go do something very specific, these are not the guys you're counting on. You know, I, I think back to, you know, you take the example of 1920s, 19, early 1930s in Germany, you know, the brown shirts, right? They were a specific organ of the Nazi party. You know, the Night of the Long Knives and everything else there moved out. Then you had the SS, which was a more specialized thing, which grew into the monstrous thing it would become. But these seem to be a lot more disorganized. So in the context of today, does that matter? Or is it the fact that they exist and Trump is willing to call on them? Is that the effect? Is the effect that we know they're there and people fear it? Yeah, and, and this is in part a peculiarity of America. We're very vulnerable to this because of our gun fetish. And also, you know, I don't know other peacetime countries or countries not riddled with sectarian violence where somebody like these constitutional sheriffs would even be allowed to be in office. So we've been very tolerant of extremists. So there's thousands and thousands of these people who have their own organizations that they should be nowhere near government, but they are. And then there's so many guns in circulation in private hands. That matters too. Because what's new here, and this is because of the leader cult, that Trump cultivated these people from the very beginning. We have stats now, like in February 2016, over 60% of what he retweeted was white nationalist stuff. So it wasn't just like Charlottesville and those people. It was way bigger than that. And so he cultivated them for years, and then he called on them to do his bidding because he couldn't get the mighty U.S. military. But what can happen, you know, is when you look at the breakdown of who was there on January 6th, it was a little of everyone. You had, I think it was 57 GOP officials. You had a few active duty military and law enforcement and a lot of retired people. And then you had this new group of people who had been radicalized by Trump who Robert Pape, the author of one of these studies, he said they were middle class and middle age. They were CTOs, architects, so they don't fit our idea of an extremist, and yet they were there. So on a previous episode, I asked Tom Nichols the same question, which is, I went to college, I'm successful, I live in the suburbs, you know, I'm married, two kids, the whole ballgame, right? What makes them different than me. I mean, I have friends, Ruth, so let me just tell you a story. So I saw a buddy of mine lives in Southern California. He's a very successful attorney, right? And this was right after the East Palestine train derailment. And he said, you know, out of the blue, we're having a conversation. He said, you know, it took Buttigieg long enough to get to Ohio. And I said, well, like, that's really not the issue. The issue really is like the train company and yada, yada, yada. 
But like, you know, he rattles off. Th again, this is a smart guy. He should know better, Ruth. But he rattles off the talking points. If somebody writes a book in the future of how America got into this situation, Fox has to be a huge protagonist. Fox has some of the highest rated shows on television. So Fox is an enormous right-wing disinformation machine and then gets amplified. And now we have Twitter taken over by Elon Musk. So we are facing an unprecedented onslaught of propaganda by people who are very good at their job. And so even centrist people who used to be centrist, this is another aspect of the Overton window. Their ideas of what's acceptable are really very far right. Tucker Carlson has mentioned great replacement theory. He's mentioned it over 400 times on his show. A repetition is the core of propaganda. So people like your friend, if they are watching this day in and day out, and then, you know, whatever other podcast, there's a whole ecosystem, and they hear these talking points over and over again, and that's then what they believe. I mean, the purpose of all of this is to prove that democracy is a failure and that the Biden regime in particular is what they call it, the Biden regime. Right. Ruth, that is such a good and important point. Bannon did it on the steps of the federal courthouse. That was the first time I really remember it sticking in my head when he said this corrupt regime. Yeah. And, you know, the joke is that it's like not funny at all, but the joke is that the first person to start talking about liberal democracy as a tyranny was Mussolini like 100 years ago. They all do this. Putin does it. Orban does it. And so when you look at this globally, this is just, it's come to us now. And this is the irony and the sad thing is that the kinds of big legislation that Biden's been passing, this, you know, big scale stuff, that's actually the kind of stuff that you need to address the structural problems that cause people to go for our Trumpers in the first place, to go for demagogues because they feel desperate. Their insulin is too highly priced and it's bankrupting them and they're angry at the system. But the more success Biden has and the more he does, the more the right-wing disinformation machine has to say that he's a tyrant. He's a communist. He's a socialist. Yes. And so this is a playbook that was used in Chile before the right-wing coup. And I have like a checklist in my head and they're checking off every single thing. It's a particularly crazy because when Mussolini came in, Italy had the largest socialist party in Europe. And it was a time right after the Russian Revolution. There was a red threat, let's say. In Chile, Allende, the person who was deposed and died, he was not aligned with Moscow, but he was a socialist. He was a democratic socialist. So fine, you had the left in power. But Biden and Buttigieg, these are not leftists. And yet they are inventing over and over again the socialist, the socialist, as though there's actually a huge communist or socialist faction in the United States, which there isn't. So this is the other thing I'm, I find very dangerous. It's a total invention. And yet people are just repeating it and believing it. Let me go back to my friend. So he was unfortunately a one-person experiment for me, Ruth, and he didn't know he was the subject of it. But I said, you know, man, when it comes to American democracy, you're like the Vichy French. You're just going to let it happen. You're just going to let it happen. And he's like, I am not. I am not. And I'm like, look, dude, you sit at the table with the Camp Auschwitz guy. I didn't make that decision. You did. And boy, he got angry, Ruth. He got really angry. It's been so immersive for so long. And 
this is one thing I've learned from studying, you know, perpetrators. Unless you're actually pulling the trigger, psychologically, you don't want to see yourself as doing any harm. So he may just feel, or people like him, that they're saving the nation's freedom. Look at DeSantis with his freedom bullshit. The best and most skilled propagandists make it easy for people to follow along because they use euphemisms. So that's why January 6th has to be just, oh, a little protest and some tourists. And that way, if you want to go along with it, you don't have to think about the Capitol Police who were killed. Ruth, you know, you talk about January 6th. I mean, this is fiction, right? I mean, the stuff that they're, they're putting out there has no bearing on the truth. But my concern, and I, I guess I'm looking to you for a historical perspective, is there's the bubble of right-wing communication, the Fox News, the OAN, and all of the different WhatsApp channels and Telegram and all that other stuff that I never see, right? Like normal human beings don't see. But is there an osmotic effect? Does enough of that escape the bubble where people who otherwise wouldn't be affected or wouldn't be drawn in might be convinced that next year Donald Trump is a better choice than a Joe Biden? Yeah, there is. Because again, the longer that he's normalized and treated as a regular candidate, just today, the New York Times had a push notification on Twitter saying that Donald Trump, and they only mentioned him as uh, somebody who's a reality TV star, who is adopting a, quote, more humble attitude toward campaigning, saying nothing about him inciting an insurrection. And there's so many examples of this. So the longer society decides to accept him as a regular candidate, and he's not prosecuted, this is the original sin, not prosecuting him. Nobody else is going to be deterred either. And they believe his survivalist rhetoric, it's either me or the socialist abyss. Right. Let's talk about Trump and his various potential legal troubles, because as we're, again, we're recording this, one indictment in the offing, another one maybe in Georgia, another one from a federal perspective, whether or not that's documents or insurrection, you know, inciting an insurrection, whatever the case might be. But you had tweeted something about how this strong man, this example of virility, right, this guy's guy, the one that everybody wants to be like, Ruth, is ultimately always going to play the victim. Yeah, this victimhood complex it's part of every authoritarian leader, and it's a double victimization. It's both that they are victimized by, it's always the same people, the press, prosecutors, judges, but their nations are also victimized. And in the 20s and 30s, for Hitler and Mussolini, it was the League of Nations out to get them that, you know, Germany had been stabbed in the back by, you know, the Jews and international capitalists and now, instead of the League of Nations, it's the UN, it's NATO for Putin. So Putin's like, oh, NATO made us, you know, go into Ukraine. So it's both that the strongman is a personal victim of his enemies. And so he's dealing with witch hunts. And by the way, I could reel off a list of 10 different authoritarians who've used the phrase witch hunt in their various languages. This is a playbook that he's using. But he is the defender of a victimized nation two. So it's a double thing. And there you have George Soros is out to get us, the deep state. And I am standing in the way. I am the defender. I am the martyr. I will take the hit for the nation. Well, and he's even saying that they're coming after me to get to you. 
and I won't let him or whatever. Yes, he said that at CPAC, and that's how the two get connected. So ultimately, he becomes this incredible patriot, the only one who will stand up to the establishment. And that's how Hitler started out, too, in the 20s, his whole 1920s, when he couldn't get to power yet, he was like, I'm the one telling you the truth. And then we see what happened. He, you know, he didn't just talk about Jews, he went and persecuted Jews. So these are very dangerous rhetoric. And the more he is in trouble, the more he ups the victimhood thing. And then it connects to the first question you asked me about the followers. When you study the followers, it's very interesting psychologically. If they're very bonded to the leader, they can become very volatile, like we saw this January 6th. And if they think he's going down and they're truly immersed in his world, they can get into a kind of panic and they will do anything for him. And so January 6th was a leader rescue operation. If you study these things, that's what it was, as well as attempt to interrupt the transition of power. They were there. Some of those people were there because they wanted to rescue him. So he, again, is facing multiple potential criminal indictments. We have the opinion that is not shared by maybe many people. Certainly, I think there seems to be some question amongst the establishment media and political set of both parties. Ruth, we believe that an indictment or indictments of him will solidify his hold on his followers, not endanger his political opportunity in the coming weeks and months. I agree. I agree because if we start in 2015, it's eight years of him and he's a superb propagandist. Trump is one of the most important propagandists of the 21st century. That big lie, getting tens of millions of people to believe you actually won the election, this was an incredible feat. I mean, UMass Amherst had a survey out in January and 70% of the self-identified Republicans said that 2020 was stolen from Trump. Yeah, and what it did, if we wanna keep going on the, what the followers might do also, it allowed the followers to be in a kind of suspended animation and not have to reckon with the fact he's a loser because the personality cult makes them out to be like Superman, like almost immortal. And so the, remember when he had COVID and then he came back and he talked to them, they believe that he's special. He's a special person. And so not having to reckon with his loss meant that they could continue to see him as the winner. So that matters that this disinformation machine has been so effective. So if they think that he is the rightful president, why wouldn't you put him back in office? So there's that continuity. But doesn't that mean for somewhere on the order, Ruth, of 30 or 40 million Americans potentially, that they believe we live in an occupied country? Yeah, they do. And indeed, I was really disturbed, but not surprised. Some of the most extreme state GOP organizations uh, like Texas, they passed a resolution that actually called Biden a, quote, illegitimate president and, quote, an acting president. And as somebody who studies coups, this acting thing really like woke me up because if somebody's acting, like they're just there for a little while and they're gonna be gone soon. So this isn't just rhetoric, this is actually now part of the Texas GOP. It's their dogma, just like election denial is now dogma. One third of the house is full of election deniers. So propaganda becomes policy. 
And these are ideas that Trump had that are totally self-serving. It's all about him. And yet a third of the House is election deniers now. So it's actually transformed the structure of government. Let me ask you about American politics, American presidential politics in particular vis-a-vis Trump. I can make the argument, although I, I have zero respect and no, no love whatsoever for a guy like Mike Pence, you know, Trump tried to kill him. Okay, that would be reason enough to try and unseat somebody as the head of a party. You get Nikki Haley who's running, but no one can figure out why the heck she's actually doing this. And the same goes for Mike Pompeo and Tim Scott. I don't get the sense that any of them really have the ability or even really desire Ruth to take on Trump. I think DeSantis thinks he does, but he hasn't faced the monster yet. And it's a whole different thing once you're actually in the ring with him, right? And, and as we have been. So why even go through the fiction? What, what is the nature of, in this sort of authoritarian regime that is the Republican Party, why do you have Nikki Haley's and Mike Pompeo's? Like, why go through the trouble of it? So you know well that people run for president for all kinds of reasons, to up their profile, to make it a prelude for something way in the future. That might be true for Haley. Pompeo, who's older and is already, you know, he was the head of CIA and all this, and he's a huge far-right extremist ideologue and really destructive personality. I don't know why. Maybe it's an ego thing, the idea that he thinks he can be an alternative to Trump, but he's seen, because he worked for Trump, he's seen as totally compromised. And none of these people, you know, what's also interesting about Pence not speaking out about Trump trying to kill him, which is, by the way, the only framework to analyze that silence is authoritarianism. It's like something that would happen in Saddam Hussein or the like real regimes where I have stories in my book of people who were, you know, they were friends with the head of state and then they were tortured and then they were friends again and then they were tortured and they never spoke out. But that's when it's a one party state. Well, it sounds a little like Arthur Kostler's darkness at noon. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like I am guilty. And because I'm guilty to prove my loyalty, I'm going to let you shoot me in the back of the head. Yeah. This is not any kind of logic. His silence that can be analyzed in a democratic way because it's not also the fear keeping him quiet. But think about had the people like the Pompeos and the Haley's and the Scots who clearly don't want Trump to continue, so they're doing this risky thing, had they organized to create a climate of support for a more middle ground, then maybe Pence could have come out and actually felt he could talk about this. But all of them are extremists. This goes back to the beginning of our conversation. It's not just that MAGA is extremists. They're all extremists in different ways. So in 2022, in the wake of the November election, there were many candidates for governor, U.S. Senate, some in the U.S. House who were backed by Trump, right? They were MAGA candidates. Let's say Carrie Lake obviously is one and uh, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania is another. They lost. And it's really a two-part question. One, do you think Trump will back more of these people? And do you think more of those types of people will win Republican primaries in 2024? And second, are you surprised by the idea that in the wake of the 22 election where, you know, Republican donors and the establishment types wanted to win more elections, they weren't mad at Trump for any of the things he's done, any of the things he said, the insurrection. They were upset because he cost them seats 
And that's power, which says to me that they're frankly no better than he is. That's right. That's why to start with the second, of course, you do have to differentiate between, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and other people in the party, but they are all extremists at this point. And that's why I made ex immediately the example of uh, not one of them has disavowed January 6th. For me, that is the baseline. If you're not going to disavow January 6th, then you are an extremist. You're no longer working within a democratic framework. So in terms of the other question, Trump, it didn't work for him, but he's trapped into this. He can't go more centrist. And as you see with his truth social postings, he's trying to have all out like me or the abyss survival. And now he's hanging out openly with Nazis, Fuentes. He's gone more and more extreme, which is where they all go when they're desperate. None of them psychologically in the world have ever become more centrist. Right. And any retreat from something specific is just a tactical maneuver. Yeah, exactly. And that shows the cynicism of the elites when it's true that they were only mad that he cost them seats. They had already thrown their lot in with him. And, and even what's come out because of the Dominion voting systems, you know, Tucker Carlson, he hates Trump because he said Trump could cost us everything. You know, he could screw it up for us. But their principles are aligned with Trump's. Their goals of, you know, protecting white Christian civilization, persecuting LGBTQ people, all of those goals, they all have the same goals. The methods are maybe slightly different, and yet none of them are disavowing Trump's methods in the end. So just as we wrap up here, Ruth, this is going to be an unfair question because I couldn't answer it. So I'm hoping maybe you can. Where are we? Are we headed in a good direction? Are we headed in a bad direction? Is it too soon to say? To your point, you know, in your book too, a lot of democracies don't fail because they fail, as, as Mao would say, at the end of a gun, but because, you know, like in 1930s Germany, they lose the ballot box. Like, where are we? We're in a really fateful moment because I was very heartened by the results of the midterms, 2022. I mean, there's a whole new political class that's there that really represents America as a multiracial democracy. And we also see the fact that these extremists Trump endorsed didn't get into office means, you know, we know that some of the most extreme positions on abortion and gay rights, that's not what the majority of people want in America. So I am heartened by this. And globally, there's an enormous renaissance of mass protest record-setting mass protest around the world. So authoritarians, in a way, have never been so weak. So in our country, it's really going to be a very fateful time. And it's like the U.S. is a microcosm of this global clash between autocracy and democracy. But I always say never underestimate the American people. Well, let's not do that. And certainly we work on it every day. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, I want to thank you for joining me. Before we let you go, where can our listeners find you online and tell us a little bit more about Lucid. I'm on Twitter at Ruth Ben Giat, where you can sign up for my Substack newsletter, Lucid, which is about autocracy, threats to democracy. All the questions we've discussed here, I write about uh, every week and I have uh, weekly Q&As where I answer questions and we've formed quite a community in the last two years. It's now read in 133 countries and all 50 states and it's global as well as US. And you can also go to my website, ruthbengiat.com, and sign up there and see all my latest interviews and writings. Well, thank you, Ruth, for joining me. And guys, 
read Strongman, sign up for Lucid. No one has their finger on the pulse of what is going on around these authoritarian movements like Ruth does. Ruth, I want to thank you again for joining me. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok as long as it's legal at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. And we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.